Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses What your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen. Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Pretty woman. Oh wait, no, we're doing the teenage version. Some wonderful. No, not that either. <laughs> we're doing can't buy me love. No. I realized something fairly recently about myself, and I think that it's related to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, I have always had a big affinity for what what I dare might say are the classics. Oh, oh. Like, you know, any any kind of music that was decades before I was born. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I did not know why. We didn't grow up in a household where I listened to, like, Meatloaf, Elton John, The Beatles, etc., even mm-hmm. though I don't love The Beatles that much. And I couldn't figure out why. And I think I had an epiphany recently, which was in the 90s. I distinctly remember now that I've had, like, this thing unlodged. Mm-hmm. All of those, like celebrating this album like you've never heard it before. <laughs> Remastered and remixed onto CD. Dare, 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 dare. Mm-hmm. And all of it was like daytime programming to sell to old people when I was trying to watch like cartoons as like an eight-year-old or less. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why. So that's the first time I really listened to the Beatles was infomercials. That is the weirdest thing because I grew up in a very much like be- like the Beatles are a big deal in my household. I know your dad loves them. Yeah, I have my dad's Beatles collection because he shoved that in my hands while trying not to cry when I moved away. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but because of all of this and because of only hearing snippets of these songs, uh, I thought that lyric as someone who didn't know what the Beatles were really, as someone who didn't really listen to the Beatles too, too much until high school, I thought that lyric was, God puppy love. Because <laughs> that sounds like some goofy bubblegum shit that someone would write. You know, Puppy Love would be kind of cute. And I would not put it past, like, early era Beatles to write a song about Puppy Paul Love. Paul McCartney would 100% yeah, write Yeah, he absolutely that. would. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we're not talking about the music. We're talking about the movie today. Yeah, we sure are. We are talking about Can't Buy Me Love, formerly named Boy Rents Girl, which, woof, that's a rough title. Thank God they got the licensing for this song. I would imagine they would find something better if they could One would hope and assume. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe the late 80s, the Beatles were at like their financial low point in terms of stock as a band. Yeah, that's a good point. Probably. I don't know. Either way. Yeah, we're talking about Camp Bobby Love Friends. We're going back to the 80s. We're talking about Patrick Dempsey. We're talking about Imagine Peterson. We're talking about McSteamy Dreamy. Mc, McDreamy. Yeah, yeah. 
McSteam Dream. McSteam Dream? Because you can never remember which one is which. I don't even know who the other one is. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dempsey and some other guy. I didn't watch Grey's Anatomy. I know. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Wait, isn't this ER? Is it actually Grey's Anatomy? It's Grey's Anatomy. Okay, it's cool. not ER. <laughs> At least I got that much right. <laughs> So, yeah, we're talking about this one today. We thought that it would be a fun one because it is not so much a teen girl movie, but it is absolutely a movie that was marketed towards teen girls and trying to get that lovely teen girl dollar as the teen movie craze of the 80s was starting to uh, wind down just mm-hmm. a little bit. And uh, we we hope that you enjoy this, this episode because it's going to be a weird one. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm, you, you usually lead these conversations. I trust that you're going to take us into interesting waters because I have no idea where we're sailing right now. You know now. what? That's fine. I am happy to be the captain of the SS What the Fuck Is This Movie Ship, and okay. I'm happy to tread those waters for you. But before we dive in too deep, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to... The Morning Announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only one dollar. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag this ends at prom or at this ends at prom. Alrighty, so checking in with our friend Dango, here is what Camp By Me Love is all about for those of you who may not have seen it. Nerdy high schooler Ronald Miller, Patrick Dempsey, rescues cheerleader Cindy Mancini, Amanda Peterson, from parental punishment after she accidentally destroys her mother's designer clothes. Ronald agrees to pay for the $1,000 outfit on one condition, that she will act as though they are a couple for an entire month. As the days pass, however, Cindy grows fond of Ronald, making him popular. But when Ronald's former best friend gets left behind, he realizes that social success isn't everything. Sure. This synopsis is a little too nice to Ronald for my liking. You're supposed to like Ronald, though. He's he's McLovin. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are supposed to like him. He is our protagonist. But uh, saying, like, he saves Cindy, that's... We're pushing it a little too far. We're giving him a little bit too much credit here. Yeah. But he is our lead, which means that we want to believe he saved the day or something. So before we watched this for the show, what did you know about this movie? I knew it existed. Is it just end of list? That's it? That's about it. It it pops up, like, in terms of, like, 80s classics, I think this is, like, a B-tier I would classic. say yes. That's it's obviously B-tier. not a John Hughes film. It's not, like, a lot more beloved films than this. It's definitely, like, the, I mean, it did okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, people remember it and seem to like it, but everyone's like, yeah, that's my favorite. It's just kind of like, yeah, that's one that's there. I liked- I'd, I'd say it's more fondly remembered than, like, 
just one of the guys mm-hmm. in terms of like its 80s value, mm-hmm. even though I think it's worse than just one of the guys because just one of the guys rules. Right. But I, I think it's a comfortable B grade in terms of like remembrance. Yeah, I like to think of movies kind of like Just One of the Guys or Can't Buy Me Love. And honestly, I would even say Some Kind of Wonderful, which is, in my opinion, Hughes' best of the teen films. That's just me. We'll eventually cover that movie at some point. But I like to consider that like the JV team of like the John Hughes and the Brat Pack movies. Sure. Like they're not quite up there in like the echelon of teen movie canon, but if you're interested in this genre, this is something you're probably familiar with. Yeah. They aren't the bona fide classics. Right. They're, you know, they're there. They're there. Like, they're not quite like C grade sex comedies that no one has really seen, like Pretty Smart, even though that movie rules. There's smart. a little bit more bells and whistles going on with this one. Yes. And speaking of Pretty Smart, speaking of some kind of wonderful, let's take a look at what was coming out and what was going on around the time of Camp Buy Me Love's release. Go for it. So. This is obviously the same year as Pretty Smart, which we covered a few months ago. And I gotta say, Pretty Smart is somehow less what the fuck than this movie, but in ter- not in terms of it, like its content. Which is wild because that movie is bananas. Yeah, yeah, it is. So Pretty Smart came out this year amongst like many more very successful and beloved films like Some Kind of Wonderful, mm-hmm. Princess Bride, Adventures in Babysitting, mm-hmm. uh, Academy Award nominated film Mannequin. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Actually, funny story, like weird segue. I was watching Encino Man on Tubi. Of course you were. Because of course I was. I was writing about it for work. And Tubi is one of those apps that when you're done watching something, it'll automatically start playing something that is similar. Sure. It started playing Mannequin 2. They're like, you watched Encino Man, this movie about a caveman teenager with Polly Shore. Why not Mannequin 2? And it's like, you know what, Tubi, you're not super far off because I do like Mannequin 2. I will watch those movies one day. Yes, you will. And it'll uh, be a blast and a half. There'll be something. So aside from that, there's also like a strange trend of, dare I say, uh, controversial romances of this year. So you have Who's That Girl where Madonna is trying to solve the murder of her boyfriend that she was falsely put in prison for and then falls in love with the guy she's trying to solve the crime with. Yep. You have Dirty Dancing where Swayze is a, a, a skosh too old. Uh, 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 just a bit. A, a bit. You have uh, a movie that I love because of on-screen chemistry and because I grew up with it. But boy, howdy, is it bad on paper. Overboard. Oh, Yeah. We had complicated, messy feelings about romance movies during this year for some reason. Mm -hmm. But also, something that I was realizing as I was sort of combing through this decade is that we're kind of over the hill with 80s classics. Mm -hmm. Because as I was looking, going, oh, I think this movie came out that year. Nope. I think this movie came out that year. Nope. All of these movies that I was trying to think of as probably coming out this year, probably being comparable. They weren't. Almost all of the classics you love from the 1980s come from 84, 85, and 86. Mm -hmm. Exclusively. Like, there's still a few things once you get a little later in the decade, like Say Anything or Heathers, but the the Molly Ringwald trilogy of John Hughes films. I mean, honestly, basically all of John Hughes films are from those three years that are the most beloved ones. Mm -hmm. You have uh, The Goonies. You have... Ferris Bueller, another John Hughes classic, this time about a boy. Mm -hmm. 
you have like the start of Back to the Future, which is again like a classic, or even like a number of dance movies like Footloose. Mm-hmm. Like all of these things, when you think of like the iconography of the eighties, we're kind of coming down off the top of that at this point. Like we're we're coming down to like the lower end of the bell curve by the end of the decade. It, it kind of trails off and it starts this year. That makes a lot of sense, though, because obviously fads exist and the things that are popular tend to swing. So it would make sense because what year is Fast Time? I know that that's like early 80s. It's like 82. Yeah, it's like, like 82, really right? early on. So it's like, it's a sex comedy. Yeah, and that's kind of the start of what we're leading into with the 80s teen movie. Mm-hmm. So it makes total sense to me that it's going to like hit its peak sometime in like 85, 86 and then kind of trickle down as we head into the 90s. We're also starting to change a little bit politically. We're getting towards the end of the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. And whenever we change politically as as American culture, our art reflects that. Mm-hmm. So all of this tracks. Also, like you even have to think about it in terms of these being proven moneymakers. Well, you don't have to try. Teens will gobble up whatever you want them to if you want to look at it from like a cynical business aspect. Mm-hmm. So I think just in terms of the writing and the quality had gone down or or now we're just trying to reinvent the wheel because so many of the classic teen films are so simple. Right. Like, what is The Breakfast Club? I don't know. We threw some kids from different cliques into a room together. There mm-hmm. you go. Like, it's, it's a character study. Mm-hmm. You You have to start now doing things more complex than that. And as you do that, it gets more specific, a little bit more uh, teenage Mm avant-garde, a little more unusual, and that doesn't resonate the same. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate that kind of madness. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't hit the same way. Right. It's it's not going to control the cultural zeitgeist in quite the same way, like, because it's fringe. Sure. And that's part of the appeal. So what I find really interesting about a movie like Can't Buy Me Love, though, is that this is a movie, obviously, it's Pretty Woman for Teens. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what it is. But this storyline was not very popular in 80s movies, but was extremely popular in 90s movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about it briefly in our Cruel Intentions episode, but we got really big into, like, bet movies Mm in the 90s when it came to teen stories. And while this is not necessarily a bet movie... It feels like it's under that same umbrella. It functions basically the same. Yeah, like the beats are kind of the same because ultimately what we have here is we have Cindy Mancini who has ruined her mother's outfit and obviously she's a teenager. She doesn't have things like a credit card um, to to put this on so she can kind of cover her ass and save herself some time. Mm -hmm. She needs to replace it immediately. It's just wine. Yeah, not like red it's, not wine like it's ruined. on white suede. Like, that's what, destroyed. Just rub some salt in it. Got it, men. <laughs> Take a salt tablet. <laughs> so, like, you know, obviously she's she's at a low point. And now Ronnie sees that as his opportunity of, like, hey, I have all this money that I wanted for this telescope, but I could buy this outfit for you and in exchange you can help me be popular mm-hmm. and that to me is like very much the premise of a lot of these bet movies but the difference being is like both of them are consenting parties to this um they're aware of it well, they well, know it's a act. little over the barrel so she's a little reluctant to consent yeah sure. she's not like super into it but it's very much in her brain she's like well this plan is stupid it's not gonna work there's uh-huh. no way like you can't just be popular because you're in proximity to me that's stupid you can't buy fame who do you think you are an instagram influencer <laughs> right like that's very much what she's playing with here and then it becomes apparent 
very quickly that Cindy uh, has overestimated the, the everyone in her social circle because they all fall for it hook, line, and sinker. Uh-huh. And I think that that's really interesting because he's on the outskirts of the social caste system of high school, so he's able to witness kind of how they function. He knows uh-huh. how their hierarchies work because he's not a part of it. And it's a lot harder to see the forest for the trees when you're in something. Yeah. So he knows from the get-go, like, no, 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 this is all it takes. This is this is how it works. And that is such a common theme that we see in these Bet movies in the 90s, especially Bet movie like She's All That. That is absolutely a thing. Um, when she starts hanging out with him, then suddenly like her popularity stock goes up. Mm-hmm. Or we look at a non-Bet movie and we have Never Been Kissed where all it takes is one guy to say, hey, you're cool, and suddenly you're not Josie Grossi anymore. Yeah. And I think that that's a really cool message that speaks to kind of the fickle nature of teens and also this idea of, like, if you're told something is cool, you're going to believe it. Yeah. And Especially in the 80s. Especially, especially by the time we get to the, the late 80s. 90s, because then, then we have, like, the 80s vapidness recapturing in, like, a TRL teen sphere. Absolutely. I mean, we are six years into MTV at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, we are kind of spoon-feeding teenagers at this point and telling them, hey, this is what you like, this is what you want, this is who you need to be, because also, Reagan era, (laughs) and this is kind of the the cyclical effect of what we saw in, like, the 50s of, like, Mm -hmm. hey, if you want to be a quality teen, this is what you got to do, and we just repackaged it when it came into the 80s, and we still do it today. Yeah, I would say what's what's really interesting about looking at this movie, even just from an aesthetic level, is that not so much Cindy, but definitely her friends are, like, the picture-perfect archetype of what, like, an 80s teen girl who hangs out at the mall looks like in my brain. Mm-hmm. They absolutely have that like valley girl look, even oh. though they're in Tucson. Oh, the crimped hair, like the specifically large, messy curls, the overly large bows of like scarves they've tied into their hair. Like all of it speaks like the face paint as just casual choices. Yeah, Patty and Barb are great, like secondary friends. I also do love that they set up the visual dichotomy of. Cindy's the pretty popular one that's mean she's blonde mm-hmm. and then her friends are like the feisty brunettes which again these are stereotypes but I like the visual language that this is it's, telling. It's creative shorthand Correct. especially when you're feeding it to people who are like it, it almost plays into like the influence and sort of manipulation that this movie is addressing. Yeah because this movie is wildly manipulative so we we should probably focus on Cindy for a bit even though this is a boy movie. Uh, but I really, really want to talk about Cindy Mancini for a couple of reasons. Sure. One, the actress who plays her, Amanda Peterson, unfortunately died, like, very young. Um, she died in, like, 2015. Um, and it was only after she had passed away that her family disclosed that she had experienced some really rough stuff as a young actress in Hollywood. Um, I'm going to spare details, but... Uh, Young actress having a bad time in Hollywood, I'm pretty sure you can put two and two together and figure out what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so she ended up retiring from from the limelight in the early 90s. So she was not around for a very long time. Um, and that's a bummer because as we see in this movie, she's magnificent. She is so grounded. This character could absolutely be just kind of like a flighty, bitchy, like mean, popular queen bee. And that's not Cindy. Cindy's very caring. She has a good heart. We learn that she's, you know, a poet. And she's also very honest about 
the cruel politics of high school where she's like, hey, I know that this is what you want, but also like it kind of feels like a job and it kind of sucks sometimes. So Mm -hmm. like, please just be yourself. And there's arguments to be made of like, well, it's easy for you to say like you're the popular one. Like you don't know what it's like to be on the other side. You're pretty and your family has money. Right. Like there's a lot to be said, but we also get to see behind the curtain a little bit. Like we see that she lives with just her mom. Uh, Her mom is played by Shannon Farrell, who some of you might recognize as the shitty stepmom Doris in Night of the Comet, the one who, Fucking punches Kelly Maroney in the face. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the mom. Oh, Doris. Oh, Doris. Uh, yeah, that's the mom. And she goes on like a bunch of shitty dates with like gross guys that kind of leer at her daughter. And you kind of get the impression that like this happens all the time and mm-hmm. this is part of Cindy's reality and it's gross. And it's like, okay, yeah, remember that like, yes, she does have like the social privilege. Obviously, she has you know, the 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 wealth and popularity and beauty and white privilege that comes with all of that. But she's still going through some shit, too. Like, there's some stuff that's not super great at home. Well, yeah, divorces weren't exactly... I mean, I'm going to assume it was divorce and not that dad's dead, you know? I think he... I think dead left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's not the most common thing in the 80s. Right. Like, it's still a relatively new phenomenon at that point for it to be, like, socially acceptable to talk about divorce mm-hmm. at this time. Um, so she's got that going on for her, but at the same time, this character, in my opinion, is really underwritten because clearly the focus was on, on Ronnie is on Patrick Dempsey's character. And she really does the best that she can with it. Like, I think her character is so relatable and is so grounded. And we even see like when Ronnie kind of like fucks off and is, you know, dating and fucking all of her friends as Mm -hmm. it's implied. And she's hanging out with that, like, shitty guy with the long hair and the leather jacket with fringe on it. She, like, stands up for herself, too. And she's like, yeah, I don't deserve to be talking like this. I'm going to pour a milkshake on your car. And I like that arc for her. I think that that's really good to see because you see somebody who's kind of trapped in, like, that social bubble of popularity and obligation. And she finally is like, yeah, fuck it. None of this matters because you clearly just fell for this dude's ruse and nothing matters. What am I doing? Yes. So first of all, the like rebound guy that she ends up with is really gross and I hate his hair. And that milkshake was 100% not thick. No, that was a watery ass milkshake. It was like (laughs) melted. So first of all, there's that. But second, I have a question for you about Cindy. Okay. Would you go so far to say that she is like sort of the, uh, the blonde Barbie type of a manic pixie dream girl? I would say yes. Because actually. like this movie is about her but only as a means to build up Ronnie. It's about her making him a better version of himself. That yes. Yes, that is very very true. I wouldn't say like I think we need to come up with a term for this character because I do think that this character comes up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. in a lot of these movies because similarly to how everyone's like pretty woman's a story about a hooker with a heart of gold like we yeah. learn that cindy who is like the head cheerleader and the most popular girl in school is actually not a piece of shit like mm-hmm. she's actually a lovely person yeah um eventually well yes eventually but I th- the thing is though i think deep down i think she was always that person yes i think she was just trapped in the cruel confines of high school politics yeah and you could make the argument that ronnie also brings the best out of her eventually but I don't know. I feel like we don't focus as much on that. Yeah. Uh, he, he's pretty shitty to her. And then she's kind of spiteful and bitter for a bit. 
and then he I mean, learns deservedly so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Precisely. I'm not saying that it's not deserved, but eventually then he goes, oh, I fucked up, you know, 45 minutes later into the movie, mm-hmm. which is like several months because this movie has like it, really yeah. rapid successions of time. Like they blow through the entire month that they spend together. Yeah, they this movie takes place over the course of the school year because it does end at prom. Like, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that, well, I mean, it ends at like asking to prom. I think it's like the Columbus enough. Day prom dance or something like that. Yeah, they have that, but the end of it is him asking her to prom. Okay. So like it ends, they're at the end of the school year. Yeah, they, at, they just blow through holidays where it's like, ah, suddenly it's New Year's. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I think that that can bring us though over to Ronnie, who was like our main protagonist. And like the thing with 80s movies and the 80s in general is that the clicky cast system was so much more defined then than it is now. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that we keep that context in mind with a movie like this, yeah. in my opinion, because there really is not a lot of overlap. Like it was very tribal, very territorial. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so prominent in a lot of these movies, because that was reality. Mm-hmm. So we have Ronnie, who we are immediately meant to sympathize with. And a lot of 80s movies were kind of this, like, geeks versus jocks thing. Spoiler alert, uh, superhero and comic book movies are the biggest thing in the world and completely dictate all of entertainment. Safe to say that the nerds won. Mm. But at the same time, this movie is like a weird warning sign for, like, the culture that we're in now because we have always culturally been meant to view nerdy characters as underdogs, mm-hmm. as the people who are really genuinely good, but they just, you know, they don't get the social shots that they want because they are prioritizing brains over brawn, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's pretty much the archetype that we've all been fed since birth. Yeah, I've seen Weird Science. I've seen Revenge of the Nerds. I've seen a whole lot of fucking Toxic Avenger shit. Like, this, I understand this trope. Yes. What's that thing um, up there that looks like a star sapphire? What's that? Tycho. An asteroid crashed there and broke the moon. Broke the moon? Yeah. Made a crack in the moon a hundred times the size of the Grand Canyon. And on the right is a sea of tranquility. The first spaceship from Earth landed there. The day I was born. That's why you're so into astrology, right? Mm-hmm. Astronomy. No. It's just up there is a future world. By the time of my dad's age, people will be living there and working. Maybe even us. Well, he, so here's the thing, though. Who's currently in charge of the world right now? All the dorks. A bunch of dorks. Yeah. And they all have power, and they're all pieces of shit. <laughs> like, the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs and all of these, like, weird tech bros who are billionaires that grew up being, like, scorned upon geeks. They're all dickheads. Oh, yeah. And that's what happens to Ronnie is, like, we meet him, and it's like, oh, look at him. He's so sweet, and he has curly hair. But you give him a whiff of power, and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he turns into an asshole because he is so desperate to hang on to that. Oh, yeah. He doesn't. Well, well, the big change that happens with Ronnie is that when him and Cindy have their you know breakup, which she wants to be like dignified and amicable. And he's like, no, I'm going to throw you way under the bus. I'm basically going to call you a skank in front of the whole schoolyard. Mm-hmm. 
he doesn't have to be playing nice anymore. Mm-hmm. He was playing the nice boy for, uh, you know, a solid four weeks because he has to be likable. He has to convince people that, like, he could get a girl like that. And how could he? Because he's a dork. So he must be, like, really funny and charming and all that stuff. And then now that he doesn't have to keep up that aspect of his character, he leans into being like, oh, I don't have to be charming. I have to be cool. And to be cool is to be a dickhead because that's what all of these jocks are doing. Exactly. Because all he's constantly been on the receiving end of the ire of the popular boys sure. who have all been nothing but hostile and mean to him. Yeah. So he's learned like, oh, that's what it takes to be cool is you have to be an asshole. Yep. So I got to be mean to you right now. You have to because... be cool by being better than people who are less than you. Exactly. Like the entire movie... I never think that Ronnie is malicious. I think that he's an idiot. Like, he doesn't actually understand, like, the social climate the way that he thinks he does Mm -hmm. because he's learned it by observation. So, like, he knows how the hierarchies work. He knows, yeah, I can easily dupe these idiots into thinking that I'm cool and popular. I I just need a way in. That is all true. But once he's in there, he's not familiar with the complexities of how this works. Mm -hmm. So he's just doing things that he thinks he's supposed to do. Like, th- there's the big scene at at the dance where before he goes to the dance, he goes at home and he turns on what he thinks is American Bandstand, but is actually a PBS special on African tribal dances. And he learns, like, an anteater dance. He learns, like, the anteater ritual dance or something. Yes, and then he brings that to the school, and he does that, and at first, everyone is kind of like, what is this spaz doing that they call him a spaz, which is, like, an antiquated kind of ableist term Mm -hmm. at this point, but in the 80s, like... It's the 80s, baby. Yep, it's just wild as hell. Um, And he's, he's doing the dance. Of course, like, one unnamed black nerd that we don't really ever see again is, like, that's the African tribal dance, because apparently in this world, of course, that's they know that. Um, but then slowly all of the popular kids start doing it. Like, it's very much the Josie wore a cardigan at the mall, so now all the popular girls are buying a cardigan at the mall thing. It's all about confidence. Like, sure, you're wearing a bucket on your head, but it's about the confidence with which you wear a bucket on your head. Yes. Where and, and you put a ham sticker on the bucket, and then you have the confidence of a ham bucket. <laughs> And everyone thinks it's the coolest. <laughs> I've been rewatching the oblongs if anybody's curious. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's exactly it. Like he's super confident and he's just owning it. And you see all of the popular kids start doing it because there's this moment where they're like, well, this kid is popular. So he clearly knows something that we don't. And we can't look like we don't know this. So mm-hmm. we got to start doing it. It's very much like the emperor has no clothes. Like that's yes. what's happening here. Um And what's so funny is because obviously Cindy's in on all of it. She watches this and is like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm -hmm. All you idiot lemmings. Like, no. Mm -hmm. So real quick. uh, Do you want to explain to me the specific hallmarks of the choreographer of this movie? Because you pointed out to me and went, yep, all of that tracks with all of the choreography of this movie. So for whatever reason, they decided that Paula Abdul needed to be hired as the choreographer. We have obviously the African tribal dancing at the dance. There's also some random moments of like the cheerleading squad doing Mm -hmm. performances. But because it's Paula Abdul choreography, 
it's a lot of arms and a lot of shoulders and head, like mm-hmm. a lot of it. Um, as much dancing as possible <laughs> from the belly button up. Yeah, pretty much. Like Paula did like big shapes with legs, but she was an arms girl. Okay. Um, like the way that I was describing to people is like, does this dance look like it could have existed in a Janet Jackson music video? If it does, it's Paula Abdul. Like that's how you figure it out. <laughs> sure. And like when you watch the uh, the cheerleaders perform, it's a lot of like big straight arms, big shapes, a lot of like shaking of your head, not quite head banging. It's like stylized head banging mm-hmm. so that everyone knows how great your hair is. Um, and there's a lot of that. It's, it's very funny to me because (laughs) it's very, it's such a trademark thing. Well, there's a cheerleading scene, maybe three minutes into this movie. Mm -hmm. And I ask you, oh, oh, is this what Paul Abdul was hired for? Was the choreography to this? And then you explained that to me. And then I see it recurring throughout the rest of the movie and go, wow, that really is just Yeah, it's her trademark. That's her. That's the thing. That's her thing. (laughs) So that out of the way. Here's the thing that I have with Ronnie, and sure, you can make an argument that he's just kind of an idiot because he's a teen boy, and all teens are stupid. I was a teen boy who was stupid once upon a time ago. I remember. But here's my question for you. There's a lot of lovable losers that exist in teen films, um, like Anthony Michael Hall in The Breakfast Club or Jason Biggs' character in Loser, and I appreciate these characters. They don't feel like the try-hard nice guy, quote-unquote, that we see more in more mm-hmm. recent times, where they've learned how to play the game and use it to manipulate people into thinking they're a nice guy. But um, actually, all my exes are crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not that. Mm-hmm. Why don't I buy Patrick Dempsey's nice guy performance in this movie, though? Because I don't. I think he's fine, but maybe it's just that there's... There's some evil laying beneath the surface because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what probably half the movie we see. But even outside that, I'm not sure that I buy him as like a good natured little teen boy. Maybe it's this like wry smile with which he thinks he's understood everything because he's, he's smarter than everyone else in school. So maybe there's this arrogance, but he's playing it off as like, no, well, actually, I'm not a jerk, you know? I think part of why you don't buy the nice act is because we really don't get a lot of time of him being nice. Like, we no. j- we don't. We get one scene where he's riding the, the lawnmower and you realize, like, oh, he mows a lot of lawns and he's kind of a loser. He's, he's decked out in his safari hat. Mm-hmm. Doesn't want to burn his nose. You get him with his little brother, played by Seth Green. And Seth Green is just one of those actors who he was just on from Jump Street. Like, I, he's so <laughs> fucking funny. I love him in this movie because he is doing like a baby Groucho Marx where everything he says sounds like he's chomping on a cigar and it's like, ha, cha, 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 cha. Yeah, he is, he's mugging really hard in this movie and uh-huh. it's great because every time he comes on screen, you're like, what is this little asshole gonna say? Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Great. Um, and w- we see him with his brother and obviously his brother's kind of a little shit. Mm-hmm. So in turn, he's gonna be a shit sure. because he's dealing with his brother and then you see him with his his friend kenneth who is played by courtney gaines aka malachi from children of the corn who is committing so hard in this movie you shut on my house you shut on my house shut on my house (laughs) like he is just he's really good he's the best actor in this whole movie him and amanda peterson (laughs) like they are they're in a different movie like they are both committing really really hard and everyone else is just kind of like 
playing what they got to do. Yeah, um, I, he's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. But in like this movie. they play cards, and one of his friends is that dorky kid who wears a leather jacket indoors when it's not cold because he thinks it makes it look cool. And he has the same like flat top haircut as Gus from Recess. Oh, it is such a jarhead <laughs> haircut. Oh, it's a lot. But like I knew a lot of kids in high school who wore like moto jackets in the middle of school because they thought the leather makes them look cool. Yeah, there was a They're kid. They're having midlife crises at like 16. <laughs> there was a kid I went to junior high with. I'm not going to say his name, but he used to wear like a leather jacket and sweatpants like every day. Oh, no. Because <laughs> he thought it made him look tough. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, it was a bad look. It was not cute. Oh, dear. But, um, but yeah, we don't get a lot of time with him being a nice boy. Mm. And then almost immediately, it's him like flashing dollars at the mall like... I can fix this problem. While leering at a girl through a telescope? Yeah, not cute. It's a little weird. Not cute, buddy. (laughs) Like, granted, he did not point the telescope at her. The telescope man who's selling it did. He just happened to be staring directly at her. But still. Yeah, it's still a little like. Out of context, it's a little like. "Mm." We already know that you spy on her as the girl across the street when you're mowing lawns and stuff. So she is the apple of your eye. I already know that. So I think that's part of it. And and then like the niceness that we do see when he's with her, it's sus because it's set up underneath these like really weird circumstances mm-hmm. where it's like, I think watching this as a younger viewer, um, that would not be on my mind as heavily sure. where I would just be like, oh no, he likes her. Okay. I get it. She likes him. That, oh, okay. I get it. Where they're hanging out with the junked planes is kind of yeah it's very sweet they have kind of all right chemistry this is a cute not date date exactly but then in the back of my head i'm like bro you're paying you bought her like she is for all intents and purposes an escort in this arrangement correct this is an indecent proposal yes (laughs) this is pretty woman this is a lot of things like you like he's so shitty and slut shamey and awful when he says it but when her like abusive, awful college boyfriend, Bobby, breaks up with her at the party, he yells at her and says, well, then you're a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And it's like, obviously, she's not. Like, that's not what's happening. She is not a sex worker in this arrangement whatsoever. But I see where his brain went there. Like, I see sure. why a te- like a teenage, he's a freshman in college. He's a child still. He's 18. Like, I can see where his brain made that jump. Sure. It's mean, and that's not what happened. But I get why it's there. And that's, I think, why I am, like, very sus about this, where I'm like, bro, like, you paid for this. Like, I kind of can't trust any of what you're doing or saying because the circumstances have made it where, like, there's, like, a non – like, there's weird ethical lines being crossed right now. Yeah. And obviously, like, sex work is real work. Escorts are, like, that's real work. Like, if that's what you want, fucking do it. But, like, that is not the (laughs) – that's not what's happening here, like, because she's not an escort. She's not a professional. She actually does like him and she does like start to feel for him. And she is very much like after that date, she is down to like be with him and like have sex with him. Like Mm -hmm. it's very heavily implied. And he's too much of a doofus to think that that's ever been a possibility. Sure. Because he doesn't actually have confidence. It's all an act. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so interesting is because part of why he gets to kind of maintain that popularity even after him and Cindy have their quote unquote breakup is like he comes into school 
wearing some whack-ass mixed pattern outfits and a bolo tie and way too much hair gel and I sunglasses. I love the excessive amount of Western wear oh, in this movie. Oh, yeah. Because it's not the kind of 80s we normally see, and it looks like 90s country. Yes, because it's the Southwest, because yeah. in Arizona. It's it's great. But he so comes, much fringe. But he comes strutting into school like you can't tell him nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where, like, Part of you wants to be like, oh, look, like all it took was popularity. Now he's confident. No, no, no. This is all an act. Like, yeah. this is not he him. He changed who he is, even though Cindy mm-hmm. said specifically, don't change yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all a facade. It's it's like the new guy, but like the character of Diz. Mm-hmm. And s- at the beginning, before he sort of melds these characters together as just repackaging his old self and is still the same dorky kid he was originally. Mm-hmm. This this is this is all an act. This is all sus. And it gets more sus when she obliterates him at the New Year's Eve party. Just destroys his entire reputation to the point where no one will even look at him anymore. And it's one thing at the start of the movie where he was like bottom of the ladder in terms of like social status in his high school. But he just got knocked off the ladder. Well, because... He is a social pariah now. Because what he did in his rise to popularity was he stepped on his boys. Like He, he lied. He lied to his friends. Friends don't lie to friends. He shit on his friend's house uh-huh. in an awful, cruel prank. And he is so lucky because Kenneth catches him in the trap because you find out that the popular kids have been like egging and vandalizing his house for years. Mm-hmm. And the family sets up a trap. And he catches him and he knows that it's Ronnie. And rather than like call the cops, he's like, I'm just going to let you go. Like he you shows know what him, you did. Yeah, you know what you did. And he shows him so much grace that he did not have to because Kenneth is a real one, mm-hmm. first off, even yep. though he dresses like an accountant the entire movie. <laughs> he thinks he looks nice. I know, but he looks like he's going to a first communion, yeah, like the so. entire movie. <laughs> Um, but that, like, that's why he ends up off the ladder completely because he can't even go back to his friends because he stepped on them to get to the top. And I think like that is such a great metaphor for like popularity and like, you know, fighting for, for success or whatever. If you are working in systems of oppression, it is impossible for you to get to the top without participating in said oppression. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens here. And that's a really interesting message to me. I agree. But at the same time, there's almost this necessity to change when you hit rock bottom. Because he's alone now. He is completely and utterly alone. And only then does he realize how much he fucked things up with Cindy and basically harasses her until she pays attention to him. And... There's this thing where I, you sort of don't know, hey, have you actually learned something? Have you actually changed? Or because everything about him has been an act up to this point, is this him just doing what he thinks he needs to to improve or go back to a time when he was happier or not be alone? Like, I don't want to be a cynic about this, but this movie's kind of cynical. This movie's extremely cynical. <laughs> so which is... I don't trust him. And yeah. also teens are fickle. Like, they fly by the seat of their pants. So like... I don't know, maybe this is the biggest love of his life, and then in three months, he'll go, oh, actually, no, it's not. I'm going to college now, and this is we don't do long distance, and it doesn't work out. So, But, like, in this moment, it matters. Mm-hmm. But I'm not positive that he's learned anything, actually. 
So what I find really interesting is that when this movie came out, it got not great reviews. Critics really did not like this movie. It Can't obviously <laughs> it obviously got compared to John Hughes movies, and they were like, yeah, no, this is not as good. It wants to be a John Hughes movie really bad, doesn't it? That's pretty much the general consensus. Uh-huh. But what I find really funny is that one of Roger Ebert's biggest complaints about this movie is that he thinks that it paints teenagers in like a really dumb light mm-hmm. and that it's painting them as like very gullible and very fickle and we need to be like, they're, like they're human beings and we need to like make them more fully fledged. Mm-hmm. And I love that because yes, that is true. And that's kind of part of what we fight for on this podcast is like, hey, teenagers are people and like we need to see them as complex individuals. And also that's coming from Roger Ebert. Right. <laughs> but also at the same time, like... Sometimes teenagers are stupid. Like, we all do dumb shit when we're teenagers Mm -hmm. because of social pressures or what have you. And when it comes to Ronnie and his arc, I I want to believe that he's learned something because when he finally does, like, say something at lunch, and obviously it leads to the big slow clap moment because it's an 80s movie. Oh, my goodness. Like, it is the most, hey, insert slow clap here. Mm -hmm. Like, they clearly wrote that part into the script. Yeah, it's pretty great. But he does, like, he, like you said, he's a social pariah. He's eating lunch by himself in the dirt under a tree. He yeah. can't even get a table because nobody wants like, him there. The 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 pseudo-goths of his school don't even want to hang out with him. Right. Like, the fat girl makes fun of him yeah. in an 80s movie. That means that's bad. Yeah, like, it is very much the Emma Gerber watch where you're going fat-ass to Regina George moment. Kinda, yeah. It's very much what's going on there. Um, and I I saw some people complaining about this when I was looking at reviews. They were like, I hate that the fat girl demeans herself by saying that you could have had me for $39.95 or whatever, like, price it is versus mm-hmm. 1000 And I'm like, no, 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 that's self-deprecating humor, and it's funny because she's the one who's saying it. I would absolutely say some shit like that. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. Like, that is... I think that's tight. That's funny. Also, I love that she's clearly, like, the base in the Pyramid Squad. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, she's the cheerleader that you see as most of the cheerleaders in the Mickey video, where they're big ladies. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, she's a brick house. I love her. She's cool. Um, that would have been the girl I would have had a crush on in the on, on the cheerleading squad. She's great. It's like it's such a great dig on him, too. Oh, totally. It's so good. It's real mean, though. It's super fucking mean. <laughs> so mean. But, like, it's funny as hell. Because, like, is. she's right. <laughs> yeah, like, like, even her going, like, I know I am not the prettiest cheerleader, but I'm better than you. Oh, and, yeah. And, like, that drives home the point that Ronnie had been going off the whole movie, which is, like, I get popular by being not as bad as you. Mm-hmm. By putting you down, I look better. Yes, exactly. It's, it's just the system, man. Yeah, so I love... Don't lo- hate the player, hate the game. So I love <laughs> that she basically gives, like, a big middle finger and is like, you wrong, dude. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Um, but, you know, he he doesn't have to say anything. Like, he's watching Kenneth, like, get harassed for doing nothing. He's tutoring. I think I think he's tutoring Barb. I can't remember which which one is They look tutoring. kind of the same a yeah. little bit. <laughs> um, so he's just tutoring and helping. And then, like, one of the popular guys is really shitty and, like, tries to, you know, start some shit with him. Mm-hmm. And then he stands up and he does the right thing. And he's like, he's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Like, leave him alone. Why does this matter? And he's like, and also, like, we used to be friends when we were younger, and then we got to high school and everything changed. Like, why are you doing this? And, like, that to me is the moment where I'm like, no, he gets it, because he didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, this was not going to win him any favors. I don't think he was doing it to, like, 
take a stand and be like, look at me, this is my redemption arc. I think he genuinely was like, yeah, I'm just sick of this and I have nothing left to lose because I've, I've hit bottom. He didn't have a thought in his head going, you know what? I, I earned a slow cap today. Yeah, no, I don't think that was there <laughs> at all. I think it was just like, hey, I'm witnessing injustice. I have nothing to lose. Because the thing is, when he does that, where does he go? He goes back to sitting under the tree in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't, like, take a seat at the head table like, yeah, I earned this. He's like, okay, I said my piece and I'm, I'm done now. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, when it comes to Ronnie's character... I obviously have a lot of problems with him. I'm obviously very sus of a lot of his intentions. But there's a couple things that he does in this movie that I think are so fucking important to see. One, he fucks up and it's an irreversible fuck up. Mm-hmm. Like, that is very much a thing people need to see. Like, sometimes you hurt feelings so badly that you can't recover from it. Yeah. Like, that's very important. Teen boys in particular need to be shown making mistakes. Yes. It just gets unfortunate when those affect when those mistakes affect other people's lives. Yes. That is absolutely the problem. Um but the the main thing that I think is even more important, he cries. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't just cry. He sleeps on the ground in the garage and mm-hmm. cries himself to sleep. That is so important to see. Like, I'm genuinely was sitting there trying to think of a, like, how many movies have I watched where, like, somebody was, like, that humiliated and also, like, realized how badly they fucked up and they just cried? The last American version. <laughs> the thing is, though, he's not crying because he fucked up. He's crying because he's heartbroken. Oh, well, he's embarrassed and heartbroken. Well, yeah, he's embarrassed, but he's more heartbroken than anything. Yeah. Like, this is a straight up, like, I deserved this. I fucked up because the other thing too is like he he goes home and like his family's throwing a party. He could have snuck through a back door. Mm-hmm. He could have walked in and been like, "Hey guys," and like held us together and went upstairs. No, no, no. He was like, "I can't face anybody. I need to sit with my thoughts." And also, they're doing his dance moves. They're doing his dance moves, and it's just like, what have I done? Like he comes home and comes face to face with like like the the the, the ripple effect of what he's done. And it's just like, God, what like this isn't me. What am I doing? And I think like this is his moment where like, yeah, you gotta knock that house down and rebuild it from the ground up, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no fixing this. You yeah. gotta start over. You fucked up that royally. And that to me, I think, is you know, one of the benefits of this movie. I will fully admit, is this a movie that I'm willing to like die on a hill over to defend? No, it's not. There's a lot of problems in it. But there are conversations to be had. Mm. That's that's kind of where I'm at with it. Boys who wear berets need to be allowed to cry. <laughs> yeah, very true. And like, what what an amazing lesson this movie is. And like, if you have beautiful curly hair, embrace your beautiful curly hair. Because if you try to straighten it and gel it down, you just look like a weird car salesman. Don't do it. Slimy. Don't do that to yourself. Especially because like, I don't think patrick dempsey is particularly handsome like i think he's like oh that's a generic looking good looking guy you know like he's kind of whatever looking i don't really know if i love him aesthetically in any of his adult roles this movie he's cute he's cute and boyish and i get it he i think that he's so cute and he's Uh so cute in a way that like a lot of the john hughes boys aren't and like that sounds really mean and like shitty and i'm not trying to be like i think they're ugly actually like that's not what i'm saying mm-hmm. but like there's like this very realistic charm to mm-hmm. patrick dem like young patrick dempsey where he very much looks like 
a cute boy from your high school. He looks sweet in a way that someone like John Cryer was not. Yes, he has like a sweetness to him. And then like he like we've talked on the show before about how like I love Andrew McCarthy. Like Andrew McCarthy, I think, has that sweetness. Mm-hmm. Um, but because Dempsey has the curly hair, like it like adds that level to it, I, I think. I, I think he's got some like his contemporaries would be maybe more of like a Michael Sarah during this uh, era. I think Dempsey's a little bit more classically classically kind of cute. Who is it I, that you I compared agree. him to? Skylar uh, Gazondo. Yes. That's who you compared him to. And he's, I was like, oh, that's correct. That's it. That was going to be my other one because Skylar Gazondo is basically the new Michael Sarah, yeah. but he's actually more handsome. Yeah. He's not as like awkward. He's not just like, oh, hey, that's the dorky kid who plays D&D at lunch. Right. Yeah. No. What are you doing, Michael Sarah? You can't get through a campaign at lunch. (laughs) He's just really excited to be to be a warrior, though. (laughs) He gets to feel like he has muscles for once. His favorite movie is Fire and Ice. You're doing so much character work for fictional Michael Sarah at your high school. (laughs) I it's D and D, man. It's world building. It's character building. I have to build backstory and lore. Otherwise, what's the point of being invested in the character? You know what? I'm sure that that's great. It's a game I can't play because I have aphantasia, so it's just math to me. Yeah. Because I can't picture any of it. Get your hands off Kenneth or break your arm. Your pitching arm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, don't make me laugh. Lawn boy. Let go. No! You broke your arm once before, remember? You fell out of our treehouse. Kenneth picked you up, and we carried you 12 blocks to the hospital. Hey, you cried all the way. We were all friends then, remember? And now you want to end his life? Because he's talking to Patty on your side of the cafeteria. Oh, man, it's stupid. I know, because that's where I wanted to be. On your side, with your crowd. And I messed up. See, I tried to buy my way in. He's not trying to buy anybody. He's just trying to make friends. Being himself. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So I did want to reference an article from We Live Entertainment by Fred Topol called Can't Buy Me Love, A Sound Investment 30 Years Later. Uh, so this was written a couple years ago when, you know, the movie turned 30. Sure. So that would be 2017. Mm-hmm. And something that I thought was really interesting is, so the person who wrote about this was a teenager at this time, or like at least like a preteen mm-hmm. um, when the movie came out. So they bring an interesting perspective and they're also a guy. So I think that that's also interesting. Can't Buy Me Love must have hit me at the perfect time for me to be receptive to this idea. I was not quite 10, and it seemed like the answer to a young boy's problems. If you need a girlfriend and want to be popular, why not just buy one? It's two for the price of one. Now I'm mature enough to know that that's wrong on both counts, but I can really appreciate the depth that Can't Buy Me Love brought to this childish fantasy. That alone to me is like, boom, that's exactly what this is. This is a childish fantasy. Mm -hmm. This is a capitalist Reagan era fantasy of like, oh, I want something, I can just buy it. Mm-hmm. And that's all I need. That's the answer to all my problems. Money solves everything. And obviously, as the song goes, you really can't buy love. Like, that's not how that works. Maybe if you're like a, a sugar mama, like, if that's part of your deal. You, you can buy you can. popularity. 
But like that, like that's it. Kind of goes back to your Skylar Gazondo thing of like because that character and his character in Booksmart is super rich and he's not popular. Like no, no one comes to his boat party. I would have. I would have. Seems too. like a cute kid. He'd be fun. Hang yeah. out with him and Gigi. That's great. Oh my god, I love Gigi. I can't wait to do Booksmart just because I can gush about how much I love Gigi. Yeah, because she's amazing. Um, but like that's such a great way of phrasing it. Like this is such like teen logic. Especially, uh-huh. like, 80s teen logic, because obviously we're not having, like, complicated discussions about, like, relationships and consent and autonomy. And, like, all, like we're not having those conversations at this point. So this makes perfect sense that somebody who is, like, kind of has a little bit of money laying around and is living in this capitalist 80s nightmare hellscape is like, I know the trick. Money. I can just buy this. Like, well, it makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, especially because $1,000 in 1987 money is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been one thing if he had just approached her and been like here's a thousand dollars please date me or pretend to date me for a month i don't think that would have gone over and cindy would have gone for that however i think what it boils down to is i fucked up i already like blew out my mom's credit cards several times allegedly as we see in like the beginning of this movie and my mom is already dating a bunch of scumbags I don't want to be a disappointment. I don't want this to be harder for her. That's what my read of Cindy is, which is why I mm-hmm. like Cindy. Ronnie's fine. So another thing that is brought up in this article that I really like is that so many problems in this movie could have been solved by communication, which is always our Every like teen movie, <laughs> which is our hugest complaint in all teen movies, especially bet movies. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is obviously because Cindy is in on the bet. But no one else in their lives are. And mm-hmm. like them not knowing, obviously, is part of the conflict. But here's how, how this is written, which I think is really interesting. Sure. The thing is, Ronald never tried just asking. I get being nervous, but part of growing up is learning how to talk to people. Cindy was seeing someone else, so it's not even like she was available. But anyway, the message is that this is a bad idea. There's comedy in it, and there's a honeymoon phase where it seems like it's working, but Goodfellas had that too. Ultimately, cocaine wasn't a sound business model either. (laughs) Can't Buy Me Love is on the right side of history condemning Ronald's plan, unlike Revenge of the Nerds, which is rewarded for a far more damaging plan. Mm -hmm. Ronald's friends are immediately sympathetic. He abandons them on their weekly card game. I get that Ronald was bored of their routine, but he should have told them ahead of time he was going to a party with Cindy. Even if he doesn't fill them in on his real plan, they they would be happy for him. Any of them would support one of their own getting a date with any of their classmates, and they'd probably be classier about it than the jocks with whom he was now associating. Layered in there is the misogyny of the 80s in which Cindy grew up. Her mom's new boyfriend oogles her, and I imagine this is not the first sleazy man mom has brought home. And it's clear that Cindy feels demeaned by this, but perhaps she feels she can't say anything because her mom looks the other way. Cindy may be repeating her mother's mistakes, too. She dates boys who see her as a prize. Even Ronald saw her as that at first. It's a pattern, and the movie shows Cindy can escape it and become empowered. She stands up to the milkshake man, and it's magnificent. But she's still victim-blamed for agreeing to Ronald's plan under duress. Sadly, I feel the message of Can't Buy Me Love is more relevant than ever. Hopefully it shows young viewers that they can empower themselves if they're surrounded by adults who look the other way when they're being mistreated. And I think that that's totally right. I mean, like, had he let his friends know what was going on, then that probably would have solved a lot of the issues with his friends. Probably, but that's also assuming that his friends would be cool with him ditching them. It's like, oh, hey, you're leaving us for greener pastures or something. 
you're going to go cavort with the enemy. That's a really good point. I feel like like ditching them for the jocks, I think, is an issue. Ditching them to go on a date, I think, is different. But Ronnie wants to be friends with the jocks. That's very true. He wants the full package. That's true. He doesn't just want the girl. He wants the everything. And yes, yes that is a problem. That's a very good point. Um, he wants to hang out with Big John and <laughs> Big his John. fart and self. Yeah. Dressed like he's the groomsman at a wedding in 1994. <laughs> I texted my mom and I was like, I would really like a picture of your wedding party because there's a guy in this movie that's dressed like this. And she was like, I'll get it for you and then forgot. So yeah, that's fine. I'll bug her bug about her. it later. Yeah, bug her tomorrow when it's not uh, one in the morning her time. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so, I mean, like, that's an aspect of it. Or obviously there's... The fact that, like, he and Cindy are also kind of not communicating. Like, she's not fully communicating what's going on in her world. She's showing bits and pieces, Mm -hmm. but she's not fully communicating what's going on in her world. She obviously, like, isn't telling... She does not tell her boyfriend, like, what's going on. So there's, like, that big thing. Whereas, like, he's long distance. And I feel like this guy's kind of a weasel enough that she could have called him and been like, oh, my God, you're never going to believe this. This, like, nerd is paying me $1,000 to, like, pretend to be his girlfriend and, like, hang out with me. And I'm sure he probably would have thought that was funny. No, he probably would have only cared if he got some of that money. That's a good point. The only reason that I think he gets, like, mad about it is because there's the implication that she's had sex with this guy. Mm -hmm. And, like, that doesn't happen. And we know that that doesn't happen. But, like, that makes him, like, volatile and Mm -hmm. awful because he's an abusive piece of shit. Bobby sucks. Yes. Um... So, you know, there there's that. But I like that the author identifies, like, is she repeating her mother's patterns, right? Because mm-hmm. she's been watching her mom date a bunch of scumbags, and now Cindy's dating scumbags. Yeah, so um, it makes sense why, I mean, just teens in general don't have great communication. But it makes total sense why she's not good at communicating and Ronnie's not good at talking to people, period. Right. And I think that that's really important. And it, as weird as it sounds, like, you know, it bringing up her mom is not a sense to, like, blame her mom. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do here by by mentioning that. But I think so frequently in teen movies, we, we were talking about this a little bit off mic in terms of the show Astrid and Lily Save the World, which, for the love of God, everyone, if you have USA or sci-fi, please watch that show. It deserves a second season. It's incredible. Anyway, but that show does a really, really good job of addressing the fact that teenagers are influenced by their families because they live in a home with their families And they're just now getting to the age where they're realizing they can kind of think for themselves and they don't have to do what mom and dad say. But in so many teen movies, like the parents are either like not really seen or they are major antagonists or they're comic relief that we really don't get to know a lot about. Mm -hmm. But we when trying to tell these teen stories of like, this is about teenagers and their lives and their problems and all of this is real, which is true and valid and 100% absolutely a conversation to be having. We do have to factor in like, well, where are they getting these ideas? Where are they getting these behavioral lessons? Who is modeling this for them? Likely it's their fucking parents. Oh yeah, I think Ronnie very much takes after his dorky dad. Oh, 100%. Which the shade, first of all, I want to talk about the shade that this movie throws. Um, his dorky dad is cleaning the Tic Tac Tile Mobile. Which is amazing. What a great name. Oh, it is. But he's cleaning that while listening to the Beach Boys, and he's portrayed as like, oh, dad's such a loser in a station wagon in a movie called Can't Buy Me Love. How dare you? Brian Wilson is great, and I love him far <laughs> more than any of the Beatles. Shade. J'accuse. That aside. I think that 
because it's Reagan era, because he takes after like his dad who owns a small business. Ronnie is being very like pragmatic and practical and safe and boring. And that's the mindset he approaches everything with, which is like logic. And he's not good at managing feelings, but he's learned it from his dad, most likely. Oh, yeah. His dad is like a step above George McFly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with here. And I like I think that like that's also part of the important conversation to have when we're talking about the severity and the realness of like teen problems and teen feelings is the influence that they have on other people. Like we talk a lot about social pressures, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely thing. This movie is littered with talking about social pressures, but it like just hints on like the familial aspect of it. And even that hint is bigger than what most movies are willing to do. And I think that that's kind of cool. Yeah. Like, Hey, a fun little thing we're going to have a little bit later in the episode is that, our nephew Cash is going to talk about all the things he loves about this movie because he does love this movie. Loves this movie. So and he's an actual teen. Yes. So that'll be included a little bit later in the episode. But I love hearing stories about like when Cash was in like eighth grade and he would have kids coming to school wearing like MAGA and pro Trump stuff. And he's like, yeah, make America great. And it's like, you can't vote Gregory. <laughs> but that's something they learned from their parents. Right. Exactly. And uh, like, these are the, like, if we're going to look at teenagers as like full human beings, as we should, that's part of it. And and this movie does at least give us a little bit of insight to that. And I think that that's really nice. Um, It's not just reserved for let me give you one good dad speech at the end of 16 Candles. Like it's a little bit more incorporated because there's even the moment where Chucky, Seth Green's character, um, is at the dinner table and he's talking about like what the hell has happened to my brother. He's like, he used to be a geek and now he's got friends and like this doesn't concern either of you. Like this isn't weird to you. Mm. And the parents are very much just like, oh, well, we're just happy he's like making new friends. We think it's great that he's making new friends. And like the little brother is kind of the only like him and Kenneth are the only people with moral compasses in this movie where they're just like, no, this is not okay. Like why are you not seeing that like something is wrong here. Like Uh something is not okay. And we kind of get that with Cindy's mom at one point when, you know, he's fucked up and he keeps calling the house and she talks to Cindy and she's like, so he was a geek and then you were dating, but now he's a geek again. I don't know what a geek is. Like what's happening? Uh And you see like, okay, this is a mom trying to make sense of what's going on in her kid's world, but clearly like doesn't fully understand. These Um, kids in their new lingo. Right. (laughs) Fucking poggers. (laughs) So like that, like that is like an interesting aspect that I wish maybe we got a little bit more time with. I think that, I mean, it's a it's a teen eighties movie script. It's gonna be flimsy, uh-huh. um, but I think that these are these are good jumping off points, like of things that are kind like they're they're kind of trying to do something a little different. They're, we don't they're see trying. A lot. It's it's that it is that thing though that I brought up very early on in us discussing this though, where they're trying to do something different. And yet, I think just in terms of, like, the quality of the scripts, they've gone down a bit by this point in the 80s, mm-hmm. at least as a whole. Mm-hmm. Like, there shouldn't be a less meat on the bones in this movie than there was Pretty Smart. Right. <laughs> like, that shouldn't be correct. <laughs> so here's a question that I have for you that I don't know if you'll be able to answer, but we're going to find out. Well, let's, let's find out. So... The end of Easy A, a movie that we both love, and Easy A is a movie that, you know, pays a lot of homage to 80s teen movies. Mm -hmm. 
You get say anything, you get the John Hughes, mm-hmm. you get this. You get this because at one point Olive says like I want to ride away in a lawnmower with Patrick Dempsey. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing that she aspires and like likes. Would that be an element of EZA had Patrick Dempsey not gone on to be a successful adult actor? Probably not. I agree completely. I don't I, think so. <laughs> I think that there are distinct the- Here here's the thing. I think in most of your 80s classic movies at the very least, there is like an iconic scene or an iconic moment or an iconic look. Like mm, there's something. Or a song. Or a song. Like there's something. This movie doesn't really have any of those that stick out, I feel like. No, even. It's got lots of like, oh, that's okay. But like it, it's fleeting in your memory unless you're like really committed. There's not like that big attention grabbing element. Yeah, like, don't forget about me. This ending is not. like no, this This isn't, like, anything about Ferris Bueller. This isn't, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This isn't, I don't know, the, the, the say anything scene. Yeah, this well, isn't the an eternal iconography of Back to the Future. This isn't the horrible Frankenstein pink dress from Pretty in Pink. Mm-hmm. Like, none of these things click there's not that moment there's not that magical element that makes that an iconic scene not even something like say last american virgin which has lots of them surprisingly including the bleak ass ending (laughs) this movie doesn't have it and here's the thing i only learned this from you after we finished watching it is that this is technically under the disney umbrella yeah it's a buena vista releasing picture yes and I almost wonder if even it's even if it's 80s Disney, which is a weird experimental yeah, Disney. 80s Disney is one of the most absurd things in the world. Like this is the same era as big business. Like yeah. let's just put that there. Yeah. So even if it's 80s Disney, which is a fucking mess, it almost feels like it's a little toothless and doesn't go that far as like a teen experience because it's the Disney Corporation. I think that's a really, really good point. I think had this movie and the script been in like different hands and with a different production company, it might be a little bit more oomph. It'd probably be a lot edgier. Probably like this movie's not mean enough. This movie's not sexy enough. This movie's not adult enough for these teens who are doing adult things. Very adult things. Like this movie just doesn't go there. And I think it just never kicks into like that third gear that this movie needs. Like, it has all the elements there, but emotionally, it doesn't kick. No, I, I agree with you completely, and that's why I also think that it would not have been a part of, like, the EZA canon had Patrick Dempsey not been a big deal. Because if it would have been like, I want to ride away in a lawnmower with the love of my life, people would be like, what the hell are you talking about? But you say, on a lawnmower with Patrick Dempsey, and even if you don't know what Can't Buy Me Love is, your brain is like, oh, I know who that is. He's oh. McLovin'. I guess McLovin. Ah, you're gonna kill me. I'm not even that big of a fan of Grey's Anatomy. He's McSteam Room. Get out of here! You're grounded. Um, but He's like McDream Warriors. <laughs> you're obscene. Thank you. But without the the name recognition of Patrick Dempsey, like I don't think that it would have been a part of it because. Yeah, Can't Buy Me Love, like, it's cool that they ride off to Can't Buy Me Love, but they also opened the movie on Can't Buy Me Love because they wanted to get the most of uh, paying for that licensing. So, yeah, it's not like 
the big holy shit hell yeah ending that most of these movies get but mm-hmm. you know what it's part of the cultural canon now because of easy i think like easy like kind of pulled this movie out of obscurity to, to modern audiences is this like that uh that robot chicken joke about sleepaway camp going oh my god someone remembered this movie enough to make a parody of it shout out to seth green reference exactly <laughs> this feels no, a little like so. that i think yeah i think so too i really do um, yeah, this this movie's complicated, and and the one thing I will say though too is that in terms of actual context, like we mentioned, like the spaz joke, that's not super chill. Like there's some moments of ableism like that. There's a, obviously a lot of misogyny, a lot of slut shaming. They are mm-hmm. so mean to Iris. Like they they talk about how she's given more rides than a greyhound. Like that shit's mean. But, you know, obviously... It's still not that mean. But you're right, though. It isn't that mean. Like, it's mean... Compared to any other 80s teen movie, whether it's, like, a mainstream success or even, like, the more schlocky niche stuff, it's not that mean. Yeah, it's not as mean as a lot of these movies are. But what I find really fascinating, really, really fascinating, is that Can't Buy Me Love got a remake in 2003 starring Nick Cannon and Christina Milian. Ugh. And because Can't Buy Me Love is obviously an outdated thing, they had to update it. So now it is Love Don't Cost a Thing in reference to the Jennifer Lopez movie. Um, it's a pretty, pretty standard remake of this. It's obviously updated. Like, they have beepers now. Ooh, um, beepers. I think, I think they're pagers. It doesn't matter. Um, they call someone on the Blackberry. Yeah, like, they, like they're using, like, HTML and, like, internet stuff now. Ooh. So there's that. But what's interesting... They listen and, to Love Don't Cost a Thing on their hit clips. <laughs> I don't even know if that song got to be on hit clip. I should look that Probably up Probably didn't. <laughs> um, but what I did find in researching is that a lot of people who have reviewed this movie have pointed out the fact that somehow the 2003 version of this movie is wicked homophobic. Mm-hmm. But Can't Buy Me Love really isn't. I think it's, again, this movie's not that mean. It's not that and mean. the early 2000s was very mean to gay people. Super mean. Super fucking mean. And, like, because yeah. I, I was, like, trying to rack my brain and trying to figure out, like, how the hell that happened. And I, I, was, re- I was reading an article about this movie and just kind of, like, 80s movies in general. And they talked about, like, the overwhelming prevalence of, like, Asian racism in 80s movies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? That was a thing. And obviously, I was not alive in the 80s. So, like, what the hell is that all about? I've seen the movies. We've talked we about did them. We did 16 Candles. We did 16 Candles. We talked about it. Um, but it was, like, such a common thing. It was really weird. And the, this writer, I, I feel terrible. I don't remember who it was. I read a lot of reviews today. But one of the writers brought up the fact that in the 80s, this is when a lot of, like, Asian countries were starting to pull ahead of America financially. Um, America was no longer on top. Mm-hmm. And that insecurity was reflected by like shitting on Asian people in movies, mm-hmm. like because it became socially acceptable to shit on Asian people in general because insecure white Americans are assholes. Yeah, wasn't there the stereotype for a while of like, oh, it's made in China. Oh, it's made in Japan. It's, yes. a, it's a cheap piece of shit and it's going to fall apart. And I'm uh-huh. like, I don't think it actually was. I think it was actually a perfectly fine product. Yeah. That became Oops. a thing. Yeah. Made, made in China now is a little bit like more on the cheap side. That's that's the joke of like order something on wish.com, you know? Right. Exactly. Um, but I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense then why this 
version of this movie in 2003 would be super homophobic because this is when like gay rights are really starting to make headway Mm -hmm. and we're really starting to push for it. So of course entertainment's going to react by being openly homophobic because it was cool and hip to be homophobic in the 2000s. In 1987, we didn't even acknowledge gay people. Yeah, no, we just just let them die. Thanks, Reagan, you piece of shit. Yeah, so there's probably a reason that there are no gay people. Also, it's Disney. We're not allowed to have gay people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can't even acknowledge that they exist. Oh, God. I feel like I was, like, thinking about this the other day. And, like, obviously, podcasts all kind of have, like, their trademarks or, like, their little isms that pop up from time to time, and we definitely have them. Mm -hmm. I was like, I feel like outside of actual history podcasts we might shit on ronald reagan more than any other like non-history or like true crime or government podcast yeah (laughs) because all of the movies we talk about are either based like from the 80s or they are in response to the 80s or what have you and just god reagan really fucked it all up (laughs) it's so bad i was thinking about that today where the thing is everything that we have problems with in terms of how our normal structure is like in america today all stems from reagan's era all of it like even stuff that's not directly his fault like the formation of like credit you can blame reagan for it yeah reaganomics 100 percent like is responsible for credit becoming a thing oh in yeah 89 like obviously like systemic issues have existed since any of us were born but in terms of like what we're dealing with like modern time like oh god Reagan, he's yeah. the worst. All of our modern issues can be traced back to the primordial ooze of Ronald Reagan, and it's all crawled out of that. <laughs> yeah, God, including this fucking movie, because this movie is just the dollar is king. Mm-hmm. I can get whatever I want. Gross. But no, but money can't buy you love, though. No, no, it can't. This movie's not about capitalism, except it is. Also, I did the math. Curious, if you're curious, uh, Ronnie charged approximately three fifty per lawn. In order to afford the thousand dollars to buy Cindy's time. What I'm curious about is what would a thousand dollars in 1987 be today? Like what? Are, what kind of? Do you want to know? Yeah, I do want to know. It? Okay. Please enjoy the music while your party is being reached. All right, so accounting for inflation, and this is 87, even though this movie was in production during 86, $1,000 is equivalent to $2,497.50. God damn. So approximately 250% more. What would you even have? Like, did you break your mom's laptop? Like, what What would you even replace that with? Damn. Does your mom have, like, a sleek gamer laptop <laughs> that costs a lot of money? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's... You can put a down payment on a car for that much. Yeah. Damn. All right. Mom's got expensive tastes. Mom's classy broad, I guess. Yeah. Shit. White suede. I Honestly, like, anybody who wears white suede, braver than the troops. Like, mm-hmm. that is an intention of a look. Mm-hmm. Damn. I would never... I, d- I don't really wear white. When I wear white, um, I know that you can attest to this, but mm-hmm. for our listeners at home, in case you have forgotten, I have big gazangas and that means that i catch anything so if i eat something and it misses my mouth it does not fall to my plate it falls onto me so if i wear white like i have a very cool white t-shirt from super yaki that says there's a sucker born every minute and it's a wormwood motors shirt and it's awesome and i love it but i have to put the plate directly under my chin like a toddler to make sure that i don't ruin it it's fine your nunga nungas are also a table 
They can be. Yes, it is very nice. It's very true. <laughs> so you've obviously listened to us kind of analyze this movie from our adult perspective. And we did want to take the time to hear from an actual teen about why why they like this movie because mm-hmm. it's still resonating with teens today. It's one of our nephew Cash's favorite movies. And we thought that it would be cool to hear from him. Full disclosure, at the time of recording this, I have no idea what he's about to say. We have not received it yet. We're just going to kind of like receive that footage and plug it in here. And uh, we'll see if (laughs) whatever he says contradicts with us or if there's something that we missed. And I'm sure it'll be very darling and very cute. But uh, take it away, Cash. Um, Okay, so I love Can't Buy Me Love because it takes such a such a cliche love story and it makes it so generational and it makes it just so it feels so honest it feels so real like the love between them is just like at least to me it's always felt like something much more than you would find in like a a Netflix love movie or whatever you know so like I think I also think this has to do with the actors. I think the two of them together really makes it a lot more convincing. And it's just a it's a really beautiful story. And it's impacted me and how I treat people. And I'm really grateful for it. Alrighty, so now that we have heard from Cash, Harmony, the time has come. Can't Buy Me Love is asking you to the prom after mowing your lawn. Cool. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? <sighs> be real with you. Like, there's not even anything technically wrong with this movie, but I'm going to say no. Okay. Like, it's just fine. I just, I'm, it's whatever. I, I'm just, I don't know. I, I've seen this story or something equivalent to it done better with The Lovable Loser. Like, I referenced the new guy earlier, which is a, mess of a film that's way better after the first 30 minutes those if you just cut those first 30 minutes that movie is so much more acceptable (laughs) agreed or even something like loser which i love to pieces and isn't a bet movie but like the lovable loser character i think is perfected in that film Mm -hmm. well yeah amy heckerling forever she's the best she's wonderful so i don't know maybe it's just i've seen better versions of ronnie since then or I've even seen better bet movies since then. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this just there's nothing here for me. All right, that's fair. I mean, sucks to suck, Ronnie. I guess you're going alone, my dude. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I don't, if you like this movie, then by all means, change my answer in your memory to I'm sending it by itself. But like, I don't know. I don't think there's much of a reason for me to revisit it or most people, and unless you have nostalgia. And and that's the important thing, as always, with this show. Like, this is all purely subjective. These are our opinions. Like, if you love this movie, like, you're not a bad person for loving this movie. Like, you can't help when... There's not even anything really wrong with this movie. No, there's really (laughs) not. Like, there's stuff that's, like, not great. But it's, like, it's not, like, a problematic movie where I'm like... This isn't 16 Candles. I'm not saying no for those reasons. Right, exactly. So, no, I think that this is... I think this is a perfectly fine, acceptable movie. I obviously have a little bit more affinity for it than you do. But that's me with most things in this genre sure but let's let's ask you this then what would you say if it asked you to the problem <gasps> this is a movie about a teen boy Turning the tables, that he's asking. i 
would purchase a ticket and let them go on their own. So still not a glowing endorsement. It's still not a glowing endorsement. I'm not going to say yes to them. Like, I'm not, you know, fully excited to go to prom with Can't Buy Me Love. But I do think that Can't Buy Me Love deserves to be there. They just need to grow up a little bit. Well, um, yeah. As do a lot of the things Every that we say no boy, to. Especially. <laughs> exactly. This is further proof that girls mature faster than boys. Um, yeah. I've seen Cindy and I've seen Ronnie. <laughs> exactly. No, I would I would let them go on their own. Uh, Ronnie needs to figure himself out a little bit. He needs to he needs to grow up a little bit more. I want Cindy to go to a different school and thrive. I don't want her to Probably stay go in to touch. College. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're going to go to different schools, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I hope she is currently thriving and living her best life, and I hope that Ronnie has figured out how to be respectful. hmm <laughs> Hey there, prom party. This is Editor Harmony listening back to this episode in post-production, and I realize that I may have been a little too harsh on this movie by giving it a flat no because it didn't do anything for me. Maybe it's that there is this very innate teenage sweetness to this film. Maybe I was blinded by my frustrations of like mondo dick moves, like stealing the girl who you fake dated's poetry to get with another girl. But I think I was a little too harsh on Ronald. I think that there is a lot to this movie if you have the warm fuzzies or if you're a bit younger for it. So... I'm retroactively changing my answer to this movie, not not giving it a glowing endorsement. It's it's still going to be going by itself, but it's not a no, and I'm not thinking back on this as harshly as I originally did. Thank you. All right, friends. Well, I think that takes us out on Can't Buy Me Love. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at The Sunset Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor. Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonder Moms for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool indie band do you want people to check out this week? So in our week off, like four or five albums that I love were dropped by bands that I like. Yep. So I'm kind of loaded up for the next month. So I'm going to start with one that I think sort of fits with the theme of this movie a little bit. Which, if you follow any kind of like newer punk or pop punk or indie music in general, you probably already are aware of the band Pup. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic. I love these good, sweet Canadian boys. They have a new album out called The Unraveling of Pup the Band. And it's not as like straight up a rock album as their other things are, but it's all about business the business of music, the capitalist pressures of recording artists. The stress of being a band who wasn't able to tour and then essentially your whole career was running like an online merch store as as a band, which is just like touring sure is like a complicated way of selling shirts, you know. So this new album, it's a lot more diverse. There's piano. There's a three part four chord motif that carries out through the entire album as they discuss themselves as a board of directors trying to create a product and then sell it to you. And not since something like Bomb the Music Industry's album minus band have I heard such a good example of a band writing an album about being a band. Because it's kind of like that thing where the Oscars love movies about movies. 
and movies about movies don't necessarily appeal to people who don't make movies, you know? Mm-hmm. This is a really good example of that working. And also, the songs are really punchy, really funny, because Pup loves to be frustrated and angry, but also still have fun. And it's borderline satire of the music industry. And it's uh, it's really, really great. I recommend the whole album, honestly. But my favorite song is Robot Writes a Love Song. That's a great title. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's about... Uh, love making your data processor shut down, essentially. I know what that feels like. It's That's too, great. It makes you overload. <laughs> <sighs> All right, friends. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye-bye. Goodbye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.